welcome to Third Man Walking. Today, I want to tell you what I've been up to. And to do that, we have to talk about the coronavirus, which is too bad because I'd love to never think about it again. In March, many businesses here in Los Angeles shut down, including the casinos. Suddenly, live poker pros like myself were out of work. The majority of poker pros in LA at any given time are European or Australian or South American. I'm sure many of these players simply went back to their home countries. Those of us who actually live in LA were, like workers in many other fields, suddenly stuck at home. So beginning in March, if you wanted to play live poker, you had to play at some unsavory home game that stayed open or travel to an open casino halfway across the country. Some players did go the home game route, and as far as I know, many of them caught the virus, which of course is not surprising. So the best option for many live poker pros was to play online, which is something. Unlike, say, a bartender who would have no profitable way to serve drinks in the midst of something like the coronavirus, poker players did at least have the option of continuing to play from behind a computer screen. However, the default online poker games are tougher and smaller than similar live options. For example, a 1-2 online game on the poker client Ignition, in which blinds are $1 and $2 and the buy-in is $200, is likely to be tougher than a live 5-10 game. A good pro can make up the difference somewhat by playing more hands online than she'd be able to live, but overall, online poker is much less profitable than live poker. In fact, Before the shutdown, I didn't know anyone in the US who made their living purely from online cash games. Before the virus, I often played 1-2 zone poker on Ignition, and in about six months, I made a few thousand dollars. But I was mostly just practicing. I might play about 250 hands in a live session, and then I'd come home and play 150 hands online in a small fraction of the time. I didn't expect to make much money. In the wake of the virus, some professional live poker players I know have struggled in transitioning to online games, which isn't surprising or anything to be ashamed of. Not only are online games tougher, the game just plays differently, and it can be hard to adjust to if your entire skill set is built around beating very different types of opponents. Even if you're profitable, it can be much less fun than usual to play if you're making less than you usually do. The players online are tighter and more aggressive. It's frequently important in online games to sometimes have strong hands when you check or call, because online players will pounce on signs of weakness in a way that many live opponents won't. Even which hands you choose to play can be different. Online, you typically start with 100 big blinds, whereas in live poker, you might start with 200 or more. So in online games, a hand like king-queen offsuit can be more valuable because a hand that makes a good top pair can be quite comfortable against aggression when stacks are only 100 blinds deep. A hand like 7-6 suited can be less valuable because there's less available to win in the rare situations when you make a very strong hand like a straight. But the more straightforward difference between online and live is that it's just generally harder to make money. There's less money available and the rake is usually high relative to the blinds and the quality of the competition. As a result, many of my friends went on unemployment under the new government program that, uh, as I say this, on July 30th is about to expire. Some considered leaving Los Angeles for a while to save on rent until the return of live poker, although aside from one guy who briefly went to Florida to play at the open casinos there, I'm not sure any of them actually did. 
Personally, I've been lucky under the circumstances. A minute ago, I said online games were tough, and that's certainly true of the public-facing online poker rooms, such as Ignition and America's Card Room. But there's also been a recent surge of poker games on apps, where self-selecting groups can play against each other and only each other. A middle person called an agent can set up an online room on an app, handle the finances, and control who's allowed to play. If you can get into a good one, you can find games that are even better than you typically find in a casino and at similar stakes. All online poker is sketchy in one way or another, and these apps are no exception. To play, you send money to your agent, and then the agent converts that money into credits for you to use on the app. Then if you win credits, the agent pays you in cash. In order for this system to work, the agent has to be trustworthy. For a while, I had an agent who hosted games that were amazingly good. I was playing 2-4 and 3-6 No Limit with very deep buy-ins, a bit smaller than I usually play live, but big enough to keep me interested. I didn't do much multi-tabling because there weren't many games and because the app is configured so that you can only see what's going on on one table at once. But I mostly played at six player tables rather than the nine player tables that are typical live and there was no time wasted dealing or counting stacks of chips so I could play at least twice as many hands per hour as I would in a casino. I also ran unbelievably hot. I won flips over and over, I won huge pots where I cracked aces, and I won a massive two-outer in a pot of over 700 big blinds. It made me feel like poker was easy for the first time in a long, long while. I hadn't had a sustained upswing like that in about three and a half years. So I actually made much more money in my first five weeks at home than I would typically going out to the casino every day, which was incredibly fortunate because it wasn't clear at the beginning of quarantine that I would have an opportunity like this. I was, however, in a small player pool, and my heater became a frequent topic of conversation in the chat. Then I entered a $300 buy-in tournament and won it, and that's when I began to fear that I was pressing my edge a bit too hard. There was a $500 tournament a few days later, the biggest one that room had offered to that point. I didn't enter it because I worried that I was free-rolling myself. If I lost, I'd be out $500, and if I won, I'd draw even more attention and maybe get kicked out of the room. This was obviously a great problem to have, but I felt a tension that I've never really felt before. Poker is competitive, but it's social. The people you're trying to beat aren't people who have to play poker with you. They have to want to play poker in your game enough that they'll tolerate the fact that you're winning their money. Now. Usually, you mostly just deal with it by being a nice person and following certain unwritten rules, some of which I discussed in the last season. If your table wants to straddle, for example, you should also straddle. Don't talk strategy at the table. Don't critique your opponent's play. Be nice. It isn't hard. Variance does the rest. Your opponents might know you're winning and they're not, but that doesn't mean you're going to beat them today. In live poker, I lose in 42% of my sessions. On any given day, my opponents have a pretty good chance of beating me. In this online game, though, I won in something like 27 days out of 30, and usually not for small amounts. Most of those days I was winning hundreds of big blinds. In a large player pool, you could go on this kind of streak and it would be no problem, because you'd face different opponents each day. But this was against a small pool. Most days there would be two hold'em tables, so I was winning against the same people over and over. So what I was wondering was, 
how much money should I try to win here? That's not a question I usually ask myself because the answer is usually just as much as possible, obviously. However much you might make at a casino, it's going to pale in comparison to whatever your opponents make as doctors or business people, and there are more of them than there are of you, so who cares? In home games or in online poker clubs that simulate home games, it's different because no one has to play with anyone. As Amarillo Slim said, you can shear a sheep a hundred times, but you can only skin it once. So you have to walk the line between winning, which for a pro is the goal of all of this, and not winning too much or too conspicuously. You also try to find extra ways to endear yourself to your opponents. There was one player who I gave a little bit too much action to because he gave a lot of action. In one pot, I called his re-raise before the flop with 7-6 suited, and then called large bets on the flop and the turn on a board of queen-jack-7-deuce. This player could definitely have been bluffing, but he was also the type who would bet twice with lots of medium-strength hands that could beat mine, and sure enough, after we both checked on the river, he turned up with king-jack. Against most players, I would have just folded before the flop or on the flop. I also used the chat more than I might in a public game, and I took flips, basically blind hands, usually for $100 a piece, with players who seemed trustworthy and who wanted to gamble. So anyway, I ran incredibly hot, and I had an amazing five weeks. Then I got a call from my agent who told me I had to take a two-week break because I'd won too much. That two-week break was extended to four weeks, and then I got back in. This time, I lasted about a week. In that week, I had considerable success against a guy who we'll call Player A. He commented on me beating him before, but never in a way that seemed resentful. One night, I was playing in a game with Player A when my agent also sat down at the game. At that point, I should have identified this as another free-rolling yourself situation and just left. I risked getting kicked out if I did well in the game while the agent was watching. But because I'm not used to thinking that way, that didn't occur to me at the time. I just thought, well, the agent's here, I'll use the chat, I'll gamble a little bit, it'll be fine. I was already doing well in the game when I got into a big hand. I didn't write it down, but here it is to the best of my memory. The blinds were $3 and $6. Player A limped in early position. A couple other players limped as well. I was in the small blind with pocket sevens and completed, and the big blind checked. The flop came jack 7-3 rainbow, giving me middle set, and I led for about 60% of the pot. The big blind called, and player A raised to about $90. I called, and so did the big blind. The turn was a king. I checked, the big blind checked, and player A bet about $200. He had about $1,400, and I had him covered. I'd had this player's number in the three or four days I'd played with him, and I thought he was unlikely to fold to me for any size after taking this line, so I just went all in. The big blind folded, and player A called. He showed King Jack, and I held to win a pot of over $3,000. Player A then stood up from the table and, on the way out, typed something like, I'm quitting this app because Charlie only plays the nuts. And I thought, wow. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a player react this way to losing to someone who's never exchanged an unpleasant word with him. I thought what he said was unfair. I'd shown down a big bluff less than an hour before. And also I thought the agent just saw all this and I am definitely getting kicked out of this game. So sure enough, the next day I got a text and I haven't been able to play there since. I do have to give the agent credit for his honesty. I got my entire balance back without a problem. 
and he could have proposed some arrangement that would have been more lucrative to him, like having me pay to play in his games or taking a percentage of my winnings. Those sorts of things are common in the home game world, and they're pretty slimy when you think about them. A host starts a game that typically forces players to pay high rank. Then a winning player wants to play in the game or to continue to play in the game, and the host ensures that player will be able to continue to take money from the host's own customers if the host gets a cut. This agent, to his credit, did not do that. Anyway, my guess is that my entry to and exit from this game were pretty typical for pros trying to find their way in the first couple months of quarantine. Especially right now, at this moment, you really have to hunt for profitable opportunities. Getting into a good game and staying in requires good judgment, good connections, and luck. In my four-week suspension, I hopped into another room, also on an app that was much larger and more accessible to the general public. The games were good at first, but the rake was really high, and there were warning signs that the quality of the games wasn't sustainable. A whale would appear at the table, and immediately, players at that table would briefly stand up and then sit down again in different seats to get more favorable position on the whale, and then the waitlist for that game would quickly expand to four or five players. After the whale left, several other players would leave almost immediately. Finding good games is an essential skill for a poker player, and when a game gets bad, I'll leave. But the degree to which seat hopping and table hopping were happening on this app was unhealthy. The amount of turnover could also make the games feel incoherent. One hand, you'd be playing with five other players. Three hands later, two of those players would be replaced by two new ones, Three hands after that, you'd be down to two opponents total, and three hands after that, you'd have to find another game. So I started to gravitate to a six-max game in which you had to play at least 25% of your hands. The worst users of these hit-and-run tactics couldn't really play this game. Most of them play fewer than 25% of hands, and if you're on the tighter side and you decide to play, you have an incentive to try to stay at the table once you're above that 25% threshold, since if you move to another table, you have to start at zero and meet that threshold again. So overall, the games were juicier, the regulars were better, but also more willing to give action, and my guess is that the recreational players were happier. Games tended not to turn over as quickly. Sometimes I found the format challenging. In all the games I've played on that app, I've played about 27% of hands, but in tougher games, I like to play tighter than that. And of course, there are stretches when you just don't get dealt anything good. You only have a couple orbits to meet and maintain that 25% threshold, so sometimes I'd be forced into funny situations where I'd have to weigh exactly how bad it would be to raise or call with a bad hand, and how important it was to continue to play at that table. I broke even for about a week, and then my hot run continued. This often happens to me when I start to play in a new pool. I'll break even or struggle for a little while, and then I'll get it turned around. There's this never-ending debate in poker about whether it's better to play what's called GTO or to play exploitatively. GTO is short for Game Theory Optimal, which essentially means that you study the way you should play poker against opponents who all play perfectly and try to stop them from beating you. To play exploitatively means to break from a theoretically strong strategy to exploit the weaknesses of opponents who are playing imperfectly. The debate's kind of silly because both approaches to the game have value. 
Learning theory will keep you from being exploited by good players and will help you notice when your opponents aren't playing correctly. You can then use that information to exploit them. As the poker coach Ben CB puts it, GTO serves you to understand poker. Exploiting serves you to make money in poker based on what you learn from GTO. But if I had to pick a side, I'd be closer to the GTO theoretical side, at least compared to most live pros. That's generally how I'm perceived at the table as well. The fact that I'm often thinking fairly theoretically should make it possible for me to sit down in a new player pool and do fairly well right away, but that doesn't happen to me much. That suggests I might not be as good theoretically as I think I am. It might also indicate that rake is a big factor in the games I play, almost to the point of offsetting the advantage I get from studying. And of course, there's the possibility that all this is noise in the data. But I think what's really going on is that although I think of myself as a studious player, I'm mostly making money by paying attention to what other people are doing and exploiting it. The information I get from playing other people is more valuable than the information they get from me. Anyway, even after I found some success in this new player pool, the more public one on the app, the situation was a little frustrating, knowing as I did that most of the best games were unavailable to me. No one owes me anything. Like I said last season, I'm a cockroach. It's my responsibility to scavenge and no one else's. But for me, one of the best things about playing for a living is seemingly not having to depend on favors from other people. You just show up and play. You choose what games to play, you choose how much to play, and in the end, the quality of your play and variance, which is annoying but impersonal, determine how much money you make or lose. This isn't to say poker is purely solitary and competitive. You should be good to other people, and it helps to have friends who can help you with strategy. You shouldn't be completely on your own. But in many ways, your success or failure has little to do with whether you kissed someone's ass, or you got a good letter of recommendation, or your dad owned the company. Once you sit down at the poker table, the decisions you make are yours and yours alone. Or at least that's mostly the way poker has seemed to me until recently. As you get closer to the ceiling of cash game poker, and I'm not there, but the ceiling does get lower by the year, the way to win the most money is to play the game within the game. Cultivate relationships, find good private games, and stay in them. Maybe in getting booted from the private room, I overplayed my hand in this game within the game. Then again, I dig it in, and I made about 40% of what I typically make in a year and a little more than a month. And for what it's worth, action in that room seems to have mostly dried up since then. In late May, businessman and avid poker player Bill Perkins warned of a, quote, cheating scandal in poker that would make the Mike Possel scandal look like a church service. Later, top pro Dan Jungleman Cates admitted that a recreational player was allowing him to play under the recreational player's account on a poker app that hosted big private games involving Perkins. In other words, Perkins presumably thought that he was playing against a recreational player, but he was actually playing against one of the best players in the world. This sort of behavior has probably been rampant in online private games since quarantine started. There's a big game and a recreational player gets invited, but since the games are online, a pro plays for him and they arrange a deal to split the profits. This practice is dishonest and I don't do it, but I'm more sympathetic to it than other types of cheating in poker. What Jungle Man admitted to doing isn't having access to your opponent's whole cards, as Possel allegedly did, or marking cards. Jungle Man was, as far as we know, playing totally legitimately. 
except that he was pretending to be someone else because he wouldn't be allowed in the game if he were playing as himself. I've spent the past several months weaving in and out of games and worrying about where I'll be able to make money next. It's frustrating that this isn't a purely meritocratic system where you simply play freely in the biggest games you can make money in. Anyway, the games on the more public-facing app dried up fairly quickly, probably mostly because the rake was so high. I was playing up to 3.6 or 5.10, and the rake could be as high as $21 in a pot, an unreasonable amount for a game that doesn't require a physical card room or the labor of live dealers. The blatantly predatory behavior I saw from other regs started to make more sense to me as I frequently sat in games where I suspected I was the best or second best player and still doubted those games were profitable for me. It was hard to fault anyone for table hopping under the circumstances, and I started to do a fair amount of it myself. Along the way, I also repeatedly got moved from one union to another. A union, in the language of this app, is a group of agents who bring their players together to form a large player pool. The two unions I was forced to switch between had different player pools and offered different game types, and it was never clear to me as I moved from one union to the next how profitable I'd be going forward. Each move required a series of adjustments and posed a new set of questions. I played on that app less and less and moved back to playing 1-2 zone poker on Ignition. Here, the games still weren't a cakewalk, but the rake was less ridiculous, and I could compensate more for the toughness of the games by playing lots of hands. I played a thousand hands a day for about a month and did well, but I found even the four hours or so it took to play a thousand hands exhausting to the point of making me play worse, and I won much less than I would playing live. It was clear that my labor at this point was worth less than it usually is, so I decided to put Hold'em to the side for a bit and finally learn Pot Limit Omaha, or PLO. I figured I'd never have another time period in which the opportunity cost of learning the game would be lower. This was a big step for me, since I'd never seriously tried to learn any game besides No Limit Hold'em. In fact, I did this on purpose, figuring that you can always find a No Limit Hold'em game, and that you're more likely to be really good if you just focus on one game rather than two. At the same time, the value of learning PLO has always been clear to me. Even in LA, where No Limit Hold'em has never really fallen out of favor, you'll frequently be in a poker room, and it'll be clear that the PLO game is the best one there. So I started with the smallest PLO games, with blinds of 10 cents and 20 cents. I pretty quickly moved up to where the blinds were 50 cents and a dollar, and that's where it became clear to me how difficult this game is. My opponents obviously weren't very good, but I still wasn't making much headway against them. And that was frustrating, because the two games have so much in common. Going from Hold'em to PLO is like going from speaking Spanish to Portuguese, or from being a good cellist to picking up the guitar. Many of the principles are the same, and you might be able to see, generally, what needs to be done, but you'll still make a lot of mistakes as you transition, and they'll probably frustrate you, because you're already good at the other thing that's so similar. In PLO, there are still four rounds of betting, and you're still trying to make the best five-card hand using your two whole cards and the cards on the board. But you get four cards, and you can only play whichever two best match the community cards which essentially means that you've got six different No Limit Hold'em hands and that you only play the best one of those. So if your hand is Ace, King, Queen, Jack, you can play Ace, King, Ace, Queen, Ace, Jack, 
king-queen, king-jack, or queen-jack, depending on what fits best with the board. The implications of this can be wild, especially when you play in games where it's common for three or four players to go to the flop. If you're in a hand with four opponents, you basically have to win against 24 different hands. In No Limit Hold'em, if you have pocket kings and the board comes 10-5-3 rainbow, there's a pretty good chance your hand is still best even against four opponents. But in PLO, if you have only pocket kings on a 10-5-3 board against four opponents, your hand is pretty much trash. Now, that example is pretty obvious, but I had difficulty in other spots. For example, let's say I have king-queen-jack-jack. I bet the flop on jack-6-4 rainbow, in which I have the best possible hand, three jacks, and get called by two opponents. The turn is a 10. I still have the best possible hand. I bet big and get called again by both opponents. The river is a king. For a final board of jack, six, four, ten, king, and again, I have king, queen, jack, jack. Since I can only play two cards from my hand, I still have just three jacks. One of my opponents leads for the pot. It took me a while to learn that my set of jacks is not very strong here, and that it matters less than I think it should that I block straights in the set of kings holding a queen and a king. This player, at least in the games I've played, almost certainly has ace-queen, queen-nine, or pocket kings, and it doesn't matter that it doesn't make much sense to me how they got to the river with those hands. My opponents simply aren't bluffing rivers very much, probably because they don't expect their opponents to fold. And since they have four cards rather than two, it's not that hard for them to have good hands that I don't expect them to have. For example, my opponent could have ace-queen-7-5 in this spot and have called the flop because they had a straight draw with the 6-4, then called the turn because they had two straight draws, then they got there. It happens a lot. So basically, it's been hard to fold on the river as much as I should, because I'm looking at this like a hold'em player, where you get to call here because your hand is really good and it doesn't make much sense for your opponents to have the better ones. In PLO, you get outdrawn constantly. Getting outdrawn is a consistent source of tilt in poker, so it's been really hard to convince myself that this is normal. The temptation to tilt call is immense in PLO. Once I started to piece all this together, I realized some of the problem proceeded from the hands I was playing before the flop. For example, in Hold'em, Pocket Kings is a great hand. In PLO, it isn't, unless your other two cards are somehow useful. So I was overvaluing hands like King King 7-4 Rainbow, hands that could make a set of kings, but that are unlikely to make anything better than that. I was probably undervaluing a hand like 9-8-7-5 with three spades which isn't that great a hand, but which has more potential to make straights and perhaps flushes that can hold up on the river. In Hold'em, pocket kings are often ahead throughout a hand. In PLO, not so much. So I'm going through this calibration process of what sorts of hands are strong when, and what sorts of hands my opponents think are strong when. There's also the matter of how to play hands going back to the flop, when I could have a wide variety of what I'm gonna call equity components. Because I have four cards, I might have, say, middle pair, two overcards, a jack-high flush draw, and 12 outs to a straight, six of which are to the nuts, all at the same time. What's the best way to play my hand when I have all of these things, all these equity components, going on at once, and I won't know what turns out to be important until more cards are revealed? All this, I'm sure, is old hat to the many players who are smarter than I and learned PLO years ago, but this is what I'm working on right now. The idea is that I'll continue to work on PLO in low-stakes online games, and then when casinos reopen, I'll be able to play PLO when that looks like the juicier game.
before I wrap up today, a quick note. I've gotten a couple comments from listeners about how they like the segments where I review hands I've played. I also like these segments because they're easier to make than the rest of this podcast and because they convey the texture of playing poker more clearly than I could by thinking of a topic to write about and then writing about it. What I've realized about these last few months, though, is that when my only option is to play online, I don't experience poker the same way as I do when I play it live. Live, I'll often play pots of many thousands of dollars, and because the game is slower, there's time for these pots to sink in. Online, the pots are much smaller. I've played some $3,000 pots since the beginning of quarantine, but that's about as big as they've gotten. And because hands go by so quickly, I have little time to reflect on what's happened. I also don't know or get to see my opponents. So I emerge from each session with a general feeling of having run well or poorly, and I'll often use voice memos on my phone to keep track of hands to run through Piosolver later. But it would be hard to construct narratives around individual sessions because no one of them seems that important. Instead, what's seemed important in these last few months is what games I'm allowed to play in. I've had to completely change player pools at least five times since the quarantine started. When I've felt stress about poker, that's been the reason. It's not how I've been running or the result of any single pot. And I almost never find myself stewing about a hand after I finish playing. So. I'll get back to the session recaps when I can return to playing casinos. I don't know when that will be. I haven't played in a casino since March, and I'm unsure of my plans going forward. I'd like to stay home as long as I responsibly can. The Los Angeles casinos are currently closed, and if things go on like this for several more months, I could hit the road for a while and play live poker in other parts of the country. If it weren't for the virus, that would be fun, actually. But until then, I'll work on my game from home. I have a few more episodes of the podcast planned. And again, I'll release one of those on the first Tuesday of each month. I'm sure details of my own poker journey will creep in. But whether that will involve playing 1-2 PLO online or playing live 10-20 No Limit Hold'em in some part of the country I haven't even thought about yet, I don't know. Anyway, here's hoping you and yours are staying safe and relatively happy during this difficult time. And I'll see you next month. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking or send me an email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com.